Uh, so May 20th, the year 2000, um, uh, I was a, a wee uh, 19-year-old college student. Um, I was a, a, a youth minister, um, but in reality, I was, I was really a new believer still. Um, and uh, uh, thousands of college students gathered at this event. I shared, I shared a, an email and a video with, with a few people this last week as this story has really been on my mind as I've looked at the life of Stephen. But, but um, year 2000, uh, Passion, the Passion Conference, put on this event called One Day. And uh, it was all these college students were invited and, and, uh, and 40,000-ish college students gathered in this big field near Memphis. And uh, it, the weather wasn't ideal. It was drizzly, and, and there were 40,000 college students and, and no, no bathrooms. I mean, there were porta-potties. You, know, you can just imagine what the porta-potty situation was like. Uh, no snack shack or anything like that. I mean, you came, and, 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 and you came to, to hear God's Word. And, and um, it was, uh, Sonda and I were both there. We weren't together at the time, but we were both there, uh, both impacted deeply by what happened there. And it was, it was really an, an interesting and amazing experience to be you know, crammed into this field with 40,000 other people your age. And, and, and there was this moment um, when this pastor, his, his name is John Piper, he got up to speak. And, and he was all of our dad's age, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, what's this old guy going to talk about? And, uh, and he began the, his message with these words, and his words were, you don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in our world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People who make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a few things that are very, very great. And and, and he challenged us to root our identity in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that entire generation, my entire generation was challenged um, to boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I remember sitting in that grisly field as this 19-year-old kid, youth minister who was really a new believer, and, and, and as I heard this pastor plead with us, and he had the big old glasses, and he just pled with us, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. And he gave us these two examples. Uh, he gave us this example of, of, of this 80-something-year-old elderly woman in his congregation who was, uh, who was serving God as a missionary in Africa, spending her golden years, her twilight years, serving God uh, wherever she was, taking the gospel to the nations. And she had died that uh, just recently, I think maybe just a few days before this, she had died in an accident. And then he contrasted her story with an article from Reader's Digest about a 50-something-year-old couple who had retired to Florida and were spending their golden years collecting shells. And he asked us, which is the tragedy? There's a dream, he told us, that has been marketed to us. And it's not a dream of the kingdom of God. He said, don't buy that dream. Don't waste your life. And those words stuck with me. Those words were, 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 were something to my heart that my heart needed. And I share that with you because as I've considered the life of Stephen 
in Acts. Stephen is an ordinary guy. He's not an apostle. He was a, a man uh, chosen to a gifted man and a, and, a, and, a, and a man rooted in Christ, but, but, uh, but an ordinary man who's chosen um, uh, to serve in this task of, of, of serving tables and helping navigate the church through one of its earliest uh, conflicts. And as I've considered about the life of Stephen that we're going to look at now, his life and his, 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 his message and his words and his death, um, I see a man who didn't waste his life. His life was cut short, but he didn't waste his life. Stephen spent his life fully for Christ. And, and I, I, I believe that every person in this room has at least one thing in common, and that's that none of us want our life to be wasted. All of us want our lives to count for something, but, but a lot of us have been taken captive. We've become captivated by a dream that is so much less than the dream of God's kingdom. A lot of us have settled for a dream that's so far below what Christ desires and has for us. And so uh, an unwasted life is a life that is spent for Jesus. I believe with every fiber of my being that an unwasted life is a life that is poured out and spent fully for Jesus. So what will happen if we're not gripped by this message, if we walk away from here and say, you know, you know he, he did as good a job today as he, as he ever does, or, you know, don't worry, one of these days he'll come along, and, you know, that, he kind of drug there in the middle of the message. If we walk away from this and kind of disregard the message, uh, maybe you know Jesus and maybe you're not going to hell. And that's great. But I don't want your life to be wasted. I don't want your life to be spent pursuing things that are not going to bring you true eternal pleasure. So many of us, we settle for just getting by and at least I'm not going to hell. But God loves you you and me no matter what. He's going to love me even if I waste my life, but He loves me and He wants more for me than that. He wants more for you and us than that. He wants to work in you. He wants to work in me. He wants to work in us and he wants to work through us in this incredible dream, this incredible vision called the kingdom of God. Don't miss out on what God wants to do. So we want to look at just some characteristics of an unwasted life as we look at the life of Stephen. We find Stephen again in Acts chapter 6. Remember there was this conflict going on in the church. Uh, This group is is complaining uh, and and, and feeling like they're, 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 they're being treated unjustly. And that this group is receiving preferential treatment. And that the apostles very wisely, they listen, they're concerned, they don't disregard it. Uh, and, they, and they select these seven Hellenistic men, these seven men that speak the Greek language and have uh, Greek cultural and st- culture. And Stephen is one of those. Um, they say, uh, in Acts 6 verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, or good witnesses, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And they, they said, please the whole, con- the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We go on to hear about the other six men. Uh, verse 6, they set these before the apostles. They prayed, laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great deeds among the people. Uh, the first thing I'd, I'd, I'd like for us to see is that a, an unwasted life 
is a life that's been transformed by the gospel. Stephen wasn't always filled with grace and power. There was a time that Stephen was far from God, even though he was raised religiously and raised uh, to know God. There was a time that he was separated from God by sin. But after he has an encounter with Christ, there's something in him that's deeply transformed and continues to be transformed, and he comes to be characterized by grace and power. And I love how grace and power are brought together. Um, grace and strength. Last night, as, uh, as I laid down with my son, Asanda and I, were, we, we were trying to put all the kids to bed and, 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 uh, and kind of spend some time with Ethan. And, and, and I said, Ethan, you know, a man, to be a man is to be really strong. And to be a man is to be really tender and kind. And it's hard sometimes as a man to know how to be both. But isn't Superman strong? Yeah. Isn't Superman Kind? Yeah. We talk about all these superheroes until we come to the greatest of all, Jesus, and look at His strength and look at His kindness. And and men, fathers, dads, is it hard to be filled with grace and tenderness? And is it hard to be filled with strength at the same time? Do we get it wrong, moms? Do we get it wrong? Yes. And yet as we walk with Christ, there's this transformation happening in you and your life is being transformed by the gospel, Stephen had a problem, and that problem found its cure in the gospel. I have a problem. You have a problem. I have a worship problem. I want to worship things that are not God. I have a love problem. I don't love God or others uh, in and of myself as, as, as I'm called to. And so because I have a worship problem and because I have a love problem, I end up having a meaning problem. And I start searching for meaning in things that are never going to give me meaning and my life gets off course. But God in the gospel has provided the solution for my problem and your problem and Stephen's problem. The gospel is the message. It's the message that Christ is king. The gospel is, 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 is a plan. It's, it's that there was no way to know God and, and have an eternity with Him, but now there's, there's a way. The gospel is a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the king of the universe. I have a problem, a worship problem and a love problem, and a meaning problem, and that problem is, is transformed the same way Stephen's problem was. It's, it's in repenting, turning, and placing my trust in Jesus. An unwasted life is marked by service. What do we know about Stephen? We know that, of, that, that out of these thousands of believers, he was one that was chosen to help the church navigate through this really, really difficult early conflict. Why was he chosen to serve uh, in this critical conflict time? Did they think, well, I bet if we give Stephen a title, I bet he'll really start serving. No, he was already serving. He was already, just like there were thousands of people that were already serving, already doing the work of a deacon. And Stephen, because he was already doing it, he was one of the few that were placed in this office or placed in this role. His life was characterized as, as Christ has done this work in him. Stephen's life has become characterized by wise faithful, spirit-filled service. And when it came time to address this issue that was going on in the church, Stephen was a man who was characterized by Christ's likeness. And, and the church knew he's going to make it about him. He's going to make it about Jesus. He's not going to make it about himself. Stephen's pattern was that he made it about Jesus. He didn't make it about him. Back, uh, back when I was growing up, and anybody around my age will, 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 will recognize this, we all wanted to be like who? If I could be like who? If I could be like Mike. 
And, and all these kids like me who had no chance of ever being any, anything close to decent at basketball, we would try to run through the air with our tongues hanging out as if, as if, as if trying to do a layup with your tongue hanging out was what it meant to be like Mike. And, 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 and I couldn't be like Mike, no matter how hard I tried. You know, and, 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 and yet a lot of us, we're trying so hard to be like Jesus, and we're, maybe we're doing the equivalent of a spiritual layup with our tongue hanging out, and, 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 and I'm not going to be like Jesus just by trying really, really hard, but I'll become like Christ through relationship with Christ. And we miss this somehow. We're trying so hard to be like Jesus, and how do we come to be like Jesus? We be with Jesus. We become like Jesus as we are with Jesus. And if you want to be like Jesus, spend time with Jesus and spend time with people that are spending time with Jesus. And lo and behold, we become like him. Stephen is like Christ because he's been transformed with Christ. And he has this relationship with Christ. Um, uh, and, and, and that relationship manifests itself as in service. Uh, Thursday, this is a small example. I could give an example about many people in our congregation, but Thursday uh, we, we, we gathered, a few guys gathered uh, at the best taqueria restaurant in, in the world, and we gathered, um, amen, and we gathered for a burrito, and, and, um, and Paul King and Bill Stein had been putting up ramps for people around the community, put up a couple ramps that morning, and I got a call, Becky called and said, hey, uh, uh, the church van is broken down, we, we've got another ride, but we, but we abandoned the van over here on, on this other side of town, and and you know, I said, hey, Paul, Bill, I've got to go somewhere. Well, and man, as soon as they ate their burrito, they went and they just met the need. And they didn't, they didn't ask for their name to be in the paper. They didn't ask for anybody. They just, because, because if, you, you know, if, you, if you poke Bill Stein hard enough, service is going to come bleeding out of him. Because that's, because that's what Christ has done in him. You poke Paul King, service is going to flow out. Because that's what Christ has done in him. An unwasted life is captivated by the glory of Christ. Look at what happens. So Stephen is seized. He's doing all these amazing things. Verse 9, 6 verse 9. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen. Now these were former slaves, Jewish slaves, who, who, are, who are, or at least descendants of former slaves. And they've made this, free, they've made this synagogue of the freedmen. And the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now this is going on in the Jewish synagogue, okay? So they couldn't overcome him through debate, and so they started spreading rumors about him and speaking evil about him and lying about him. All right? Verse 13, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and... Uh, we'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, hold on a second. If everybody you've... Now, this is Stephen's home synagogue, okay? This is, this is, this is where he's... This is the synagogue that he's been worshiping in. Can you imagine if everybody in church started lying about you and bringing up false witnesses against you and saying you needed to be beaten and killed? Like, what would your face look like? Anybody want to say... Probably it wouldn't look like the face of an angel, okay? And yet, what does that even mean, his face looks like the face of an angel? Probably it means there's a serenity and a grace and a power about his face that cannot be explained in human terms. Maybe there's even an illumination or a gloriousness about his face. How can that be? Stephen has spent his days beholding the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. He has spent his days with Christ. Now, Christ is ascended. 
So Stephen has the same kind of relationship with Jesus that you and I do. But he spent his days in, in, in deep relationship uh, knowing Christ, studying God's Word. And when you poke Stephen, the glory of God comes spilling out of him. When you cut Stephen, he bleeds God's glory. And even when everybody's lying on him and talking bad about him, there's a serenity and a power and a glory about his face because that's what he has been beholding. They see the reflection of Jesus because that's who Stephen has been looking at. Because we become like whatever or whoever we worship. So what does your face say about what you worship? When you get pushed, what does your face say? You know, Stephen's captivated by Jesus. And so he can't be taken captive by anything else. Stephen is captivated by Jesus, and so he cannot be taken captive by anything less than Jesus. He can't be taken captive by the, by the temptation to, uh, to, just, to, to just buckle under this pressure. He can't be taken captive by the threats that are being breathed against him because he is captivated by Jesus. And, and, and of all the things that could be said about us or all the things that could be said about the church in America, would you say that at the top of the list would be we're captivated by Jesus? think maybe we've been taken captive by a lot of other things as a, as a look at social media as a look at media media it seems like the church has become captivated by by politics and by power and by a lot of things but i don't know that we've been taken captive or by we've been captivated by jesus it's amazing what begins to change in our lives is jesus captivates us we begin relating to people as jesus would when we're captivated by the risen Jesus, we're not taken captive by anything less than Him. An unwasted life is rooted in the story of Scripture. Now, Stephen is, is going to uh, give uh, one of the longest sermons in Scripture. It's the only sermon of his that we have, but he gets more, uh, he gets more uh, uh, sermon notes written down than just about anybody does. And, and some say this is one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Uh, uh, George Bernard Shaw said that, uh, that, that, that Stephen was... Uh, was rambling and, 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 and had to have been terrible to listen to. So I guess it's a matter of opinion. Some, lo- some, some love his, his sermon, some don't. Uh, but what we see going on in Stephen's message is that we see that he is rooted in the story of Scripture. An unwasted life is deeply rooted in the story of Scripture. The reason that people are so mad at Stephen and the reason they want to kill him is because he says that the law has been fulfilled in Jesus, and that the temple has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so they say that he is speaking evil of the law and speaking evil of the temple, which are the very charges that were brought against Jesus himself. Now, Stephen isn't saying evil things about the law or evil things about the temple. What he's saying is they've served their purpose. Just like if you came over to the, to the U.S. on the Mayflower, well, the Mayflower docks on the East Coast, you're not going to get to California on the Mayflower. You've got to start walking at that point, right? So it served its purpose, but its purpose has been fulfilled. The law has served its purpose, but it's found its fulfillment in Jesus. Now the law can't get us where only Jesus can. The temple has served its purpose, but now it can't get us where only Jesus can. And so, so, so Stephen is going to redefine the law, and he's going to redefine the temple around being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And let's just look at his sermon a little bit. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest said, Are these things so? Now Stephen's before the high priest, before the elders of the people. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now this is really important. Stephen said, 
Abraham was in Mesopotamia. There wasn't a temple in Mesopotamia, but God was there. God's not restricted in this temple made with hands. Before he lived in Haran, and he said to him, Go out from our, your land and from the kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After his father died, God removed him from there also into this land where you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it. Then he goes on, verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Where was God? God was in Egypt. There wasn't a a, a Jerusalem temple in Egypt, but God was there. Uh, And rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there was a famine, and he goes on to tell the story of how Joseph is faithful. Picking up in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abram, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to, be, to expose their infants. And he's going to tell how Moses is, is, is born. And Moses becomes this deliverer. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. He's talking about Moses, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Picking up in verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to, to him. To who? Moses in the wilderness on Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. Now what's Stephen doing? He's tracking the big story of Scripture. Just like we spent uh, several months doing last year, Stephen is taking the people. Now, the people he's talking to, they know the story well. But they're drawing a different interpretation. And what Stephen builds towards, he, he walks through Moses and then he shares how, how, the ta- how, the, how the tabernacle is built in the wilderness. And then finally, David has this vision and then that vision is completed by his son Solomon to build, uh, to build the temple in Jerusalem. But even then, there's these words that God does not dwell in a, taber- in a temple made with hands. Verse 51, Acts seven fifty one. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears. Now, Stephen's aware of anatomy. He knows that the heart and the ears aren't typically where circumcision happens. But what he's getting at is there's this Old Testament promise in Deuteronomy that one day God would do a supernatural work in His people's hearts. Where it wouldn't just be about doing the rules just to do the rules, but God would do something supernaturally in our hearts and He would write His law on our hearts. And Stephen is saying that has happened in Christ. And there's a lot of us, there's a lot of people in church every Sunday who we're, we're, we're doing the right things, and maybe religious observance are the seashells that we're gathering. But, but that's not going to impress Christ. What Christ is looking for is, has something supernatural happened in your heart? Has something supernatural happened in my heart? Do you know Him and does He know you? Has He done something in your heart that only He can? Verse 52, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and you did not keep it. So Stephen accuses his own people of being lawbreakers. And he accuses them of being people who have murdered the prophets. And he's interpreting his own story in light of the big story of Scripture. Where are we, where are we getting at with all of that? An unwasted life is rooted in the story of Scripture. Stephen is able to sit down and in a matter of a few minutes, he's able to, to walk through the story of redemption from creation to Christ. Man, every believer needs to be able to do that. This is how God... And if you want to know how to do it, just read Stephen's sermon. And that gives us... A, that, that's the whole Old Testament summarized in just a few minutes. Here's the big story. And here's how Christ, through His death 
And his resurrection is the fulfillment of that story. And then not only does, does Stephen see Jesus in his death and his resurrection as being the fulfillment of the Old Testament story, Stephen sees Jesus as being the fulfillment of his own story. And he sees his own story as being rooted in the story of, of the Scripture and of Christ's death and resurrection. Stephen understands his own life in the light of that big story. Hello. In the light of that big story. Um, and, 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 and guys, it's so easy to forget that there is a big story going on that Christ has been writing since the beginning of time and that we are invited into that. As we, uh, as we, get, uh, as we get closer to, uh, to, uh, to wrapping up, an unwasted life is lived from a position of acceptance. An unwasted life is not lived for acceptance. Watch what happens next, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged. I bet. I mean, can you imagine if somebody called us a bunch of lawbreakers who, who, who always opposed God? We'd probably be enraged, right? They were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. That's rage. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, who is near death at this point, about to be executed, and he knows it. He looks around, and he looks up, and he has this vision of Jesus standing behind, beside the throne of God. Now, this is rooted in Daniel 7, where there's this vision of the Son of Man who's overcome all worldly empires and is exalted to the right hand of the Father. But usually, when we talk about Jesus uh, being at the right hand of the Father, we picture him as being seated, or he's described as being seated on his throne, but here he's standing. And some people say that Jesus is standing because he is giving Stephen the standing ovation as Stephen is faithful. Some say that Jesus standing is a sign that Jesus accepts Stephen. Some, some say that Jesus is standing in solidarity with Stephen and with everybody who suffers at the hands of injustice from then until now. Some say that Jesus is standing as a symbol of hospitality. He is ready to receive Stephen into the Father's house that we just sang about. Jesus is with Stephen, and Stephen's eyes are set on Jesus. And Stephen knows that even though all of these people reject him, Jesus rejoices over him. Jesus accepts him. Stephen is secure in Christ's approval. And so he's able to stand firm even in the midst of total disapproval from others. Can you imagine this? People that you've gone to church with, let's say, your whole life suddenly want to kill you. Can you imagine the pressure of that? And, and, and we all know how hard it is to stand firm when we really believe something, how hard it is to stand firm when people we love say, wait, you're wrong about that? And Peter is secure. So I keep saying Peter. Stephen is secure. Stephen is secure in Christ's approval. And so he's able to stand even in the midst of total disapproval. He's not desperate for their approval, their acceptance. He's not living for their acceptance because he's rooted in Christ's acceptance. An unwasted life finally exalts Christ no matter what. What happens next? He sees this, this vision of Jesus and then verse 56. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. 
Now what stoning looked like in those days, remember when Jesus was cast out of the synagogue and he was cast up onto a high hill, a precipice, and they're about to throw him down, and then, uh, and then it's not his time yet, so he ends up just walking through the crowd. Well, that's what happens to Stephen. In these days, you would be chased out of town and driven up onto kind of a high hillside, and then you would be thrown off. And you would fall a few feet down to the ground, and sometimes that itself would kill you. Other times you would, be va- you would be badly injured. And so one by one, people would stand up on the cliff over you with a big rock, and they would throw a rock at you. And they would continue to throw those until you died. And it's in this moment that Stephen says, as they were stoning Stephen, verse 59, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. What a tender and what a peaceful description. He fell asleep to describe such a brutal act. Um, He prays for their forgiveness that the Lord would not hold their sin against them. Now, previous Jewish martyrs, if you read in, in the book of 2 Maccabees, for example, previous Jewish martyrs who were, who were killed by and tortured by uh, wicked regimes, they called down eternal curses upon those that were killing them. They said, you're going to burn in hell for this. It's not what Stephen does. Stephen's words are echoes of Christ's words. He's like Mike. He's like Jesus because he has a relationship with Jesus. And he responds the same way Jesus responded to the cross. Stephen doesn't pretend that this is right. You know, and actually the whole reason he's getting killed is because he told these people to their face that they're not right. So grace doesn't mean that, pre- that we're pretending that unrighteous things are right. Grace doesn't mean that we say, oh, it didn't really happen or, 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 or it wasn't a big deal. No, he doesn't do any of that. He, he calls them out and he holds on to truth. But he also refuses to exact revenge. In the final painful moments of Stephen's life. He doesn't exact revenge. He exalts Christ. That's how he chooses to spend his life. And there's a lot of people wasting their lives trying to exact revenge when there is a better way. He doesn't pretend it's right, but he also doesn't demand vengeance. And those moments of dying flow from a life lived well. Stephen's able to die well because he's lived well. A lot of us think we can die well even if we haven't lived well. Every coward thinks that if it came down to it and and, and he was in a bank when the bank was getting robbed, he'd be the hero. Do you know every coward believes that? Every coward thinks they're going to die bravely. But we die as we live. And Stephen lived well. And because he lived well, and he didn't waste his life, He lived chasing Jesus, spending his life on Jesus. He's able to die as he lived. He's able to die well. This has been forged. This heart in him has been forged in a life lived well. So the question I have is, how are you living? How am I living? How are we living? Even in death, Stephen trusts the sovereignty of Jesus. He sees what nobody else sees. There's a sovereign God standing. Now what do we read next? Verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. And everybody lays down their coats as they go and they go to kill Stephen. They lay their, lay their coats down at Saul's feet. 
And Saul becomes enraged by what he saw at Stephen's testimony, and Saul begins to go and persecute the church. But Saul never got Stephen's dying words out of his head. Those words never stopped haunting Saul. Father, forgive them. Lord, receive my spirit. I see the Son of Man exalted at the right hand of the Father. And Saul, in just a couple chapters, is going to go from being a persecutor of the church to being a preacher of the very gospel that Stephen just died for. Stephen's role in the story is different than Saul's. Stephen preaches one sermon and he gets killed. Saul ends up going around the world sharing the gospel and writes most of the New Testament. But Stephen trusts the sovereignty of God. Stephen's role is different and an unwasted life doesn't get stuck in comparison, but instead seeks to play our role well. That's a big one. An unwasted life doesn't get bogged down in comparison. Sometimes God's plan for you is to travel the world and write most of the New Testament. Sometimes God's plan for you is to be brutally martyred. I know which one of those I would prefer. In human understanding, it makes no sense for a light like Stephen's to be snuffed out. It makes no sense to lose a man of his gifting. And yet in his death, he achieved more than he did in his life. God uses his death in two ways. The church gets scattered. We're told in chapter 8, verse 3, the church is scattered. The word there is diaspora, which is a word like a farmer casting seed. This incredible persecution happens, and the church scatters around the world. And it looked like that was the end of the church. But what it actually was was the beginning of a new chapter. The gospel spreads around the world. They take the gospel with them. The other thing that happens is that testimony continues to rattle around in Paul's, Saul's head, and Saul becomes transformed. What, in, what appeared to be the death of the church was actually new life. And that's what the gospel says happens. New life comes out of death. An unwasted life doesn't get stuck in comparison. An unwasted li- life trusts the sovereignty of God. So Stephen's death, Stephen's name, sorry, Stephen's name, Stephanos in Greek, means crown. It means crown. And throughout the New Testament, believers in Christ are promised an eternal crown. That we will get this unfading crown of life, this crown of righteousness, this crown of glory. And I I, I love to imagine Stephen transitioning from from, uh, falling asleep with that last stone struck him into the presence of Jesus and Jesus laying that crown on his head And Stephen not hesitating to take that crown off and lay that crown at the feet of Jesus. There's a crown of life waiting for you. If you know Jesus, there's a crown of life waiting for you. That crown is waiting for you. It's a crown that Jesus deserves, that he wants to give you. Because he wore the crown that you and I deserved, a crown of thorns. He wore a crown of thorns so that you and I could get a crown of life. Is that not amazing? An unwasted life is a life spent for Jesus. How can I spend my life for Jesus? The only way I or you can spend our life for Jesus is when we we come to understand that He has spent His life for us already. Jesus spent His life for you, church. You get an unfading crown of life. You get the crown He deserves because He wore the one you deserve. So how are you spending your life? Maybe you don't gather seashells. But what are you gathering that's distracting you 
from the big dream that God has for you. How are we living?